This is section 14 of What is Man and Other Essays by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Shrine of St. Wagner. Bayreuth, August 2, 1891. It was at Nuremberg that we struck the inundation of music-mad strangers that was rolling down upon Bayreuth. It had been long since we had seen such multitudes of excited and struggling people. It took a good half-hour to pack them and pair them into the train, and it was the longest train we have yet seen in Europe. Nuremberg had been witnessing this sort of experience a couple of times a day for about two weeks. It gives one an impressive sense of the magnitude of this biennial pilgrimage. For a pilgrimage is what it is. The devotees come from the very ends of the earth to worship their prophet in his own Kaaba, in his own Mecca. If you are living in New York, or San Francisco, or Chicago, or anywhere else in America, and you conclude, by the middle of May, that you would like to attend the Beirut Opera two months and a half later, you must use the cable and get about it immediately, or you will get no seats, and you must cable for lodgings, too. Then, if you are lucky, you will get seats in the last row, and lodgings in the fringe of the town. If you stop to write, you will get nothing." There were plenty of people in Nuremberg, when we passed through, who had come on pilgrimage without first securing seats and lodgings. They had found neither in Bayreuth. They had walked Bayreuth streets a while in sorrow, then had gone to Nuremberg and found neither beds nor standing-room, and had walked those quaint streets all night, waiting for the hotels to open and empty their guests into the trains, and so make room for these, their defeated brethren and sisters in the faith. They had endured from thirty to forty hours railroading on the continent of Europe, with all which that implies of worry, fatigue, and financial impoverishment, and all they had got, and all they were to get for it, was handiness and accuracy in kicking themselves, acquired by practice in the back streets of the two towns when other people were in bed for back they must go over that unspeakable journey with their pious mission unfulfilled. These humiliated outcasts had the frowsy and unbrushed and apologetic look of wet cats, and their eyes were glazed with drowsiness, their bodies were a droop from crown to sole, and all kind-hearted people refrained from asking them if they had been to Bayreuth and failed to connect, as knowing they would lie. We reached here, Bayreuth, about mid-afternoon of a rainy Saturday. We were of the wise, and had secured lodgings and opera seats months in advance. I am not a musical critic, and did not come here to write essays about the operas and deliver judgment upon their merits. The little children of Bayreuth could do that with a finer sympathy and a broader intelligence than I. I only care to bring four or five pilgrims to the operas pilgrims able to appreciate them and enjoy them. What I write about the performance to put in my odd time would be offered to the public as merely a cat's view of a king, and not of didactic value. Next day, which was Sunday, we left for the opera house, that is to say, the Wagner Temple, a little after the middle of the afternoon. The great building stands all by itself, grand and lonely, on a high ground outside the town. We were warned that if we arrived after four o'clock, we should be obliged to pay two dollars and a half apiece extra by way of fine. We saved that, and it may be remarked here 
that this is the only opportunity that Europe offers of saving money. There was a big crowd in the grounds about the building, and the ladies' dresses took the sun with fine effect. I do not mean to intimate that the ladies were in full dress, for that was not so. The dresses were pretty, but neither sex was in evening dress. The interior of the building is simple, severely so, but there is no occasion for color and decoration, since the people sit in the dark. The auditorium has the shape of a keystone, with the stage at the narrow end. There is an aisle on each side, but no aisle in the body of the house. Each row of seats extends in an unbroken curve from one side of the house to the other. There are seven entrance doors on each side of the theater, and four at the butt, eighteen doors to admit and emit one thousand six hundred and fifty persons. The number of the particular door by which you are to enter the house or leave it is printed on your ticket, and you can use no door but that one. Thus crowding and confusion are impossible. Not so many as a hundred people use any one door. This is better than having the usual and useless elaborate fireproof arrangements. It is the model theater of the world. It can be emptied while the second hand of a watch makes its circuit. It would be entirely safe, even if it were built of lucifer matches. If your seat is near the center of a row, and you enter late, you must work your way along a rank of about twenty-five ladies and gentlemen to get to it. Yet this causes no trouble, for everybody stands up until all the seats are full, and the filling is accomplished in a very few minutes. Then all sit down, and you have a solid mass of fifteen hundred heads, making a steep cellar-door slant from the rear of the house down to the stage. All the lights were turned low, so low that the congregation sat in a deep and solemn gloom. The funereal rustling of dresses and the low buzz of conversation began to die swiftly down, and presently not the ghost of a sound was left. This profound and increasingly impressive stillness endured for some time, the best preparation for music, spectacle, or speech conceivable. I should think our show-people would have invented or imported that simple and impressive device for securing and solidifying the attention of an audience long ago, instead of which they continue to this day to open a performance against a deadly competition in the form of noise, confusion, and a scattered interest. Finally out of the darkness and distance and mystery, Soft, rich notes rose upon the stillness, and from his grave the dead magician began to weave his spells about his disciples, and steep their souls in his enchantments. There was something strangely impressive in the fancy which kept intruding itself, that the composer was conscious in his grave of what was going on here, and that these divine sounds were the clothing of thoughts, which were at this moment passing through his brain and not recognized and familiar ones which had issued from it at some former time. The entire overture, long as it was, was played to a dark house with a curtain down. It was exquisite. It was delicious. But straightway thereafter, of course, came the singing, and it does seem to me that nothing can make a Wagner opera absolutely perfect and satisfactory to the untutored but to leave out the vocal parts. I wish I could see a Wagner opera done in pantomime once. Then one would have the lovely orchestration unvexed to listen to and bathe his spirit in, and the bewildering beautiful scenery to intoxicate his eyes with. 
and the dumb acting couldn't mar these pleasures because there isn't often anything in the wagner opera that one would call by such a violent name as acting as a rule all you would see would be a couple of silent people one of them standing still the other catching flies of course i do not really mean that he would be catching flies i only mean that the usual operatic gestures which consist in reaching first one hand out into the air and then the other might suggest the sport i speak of if the operator attended strictly to business and uttered no sound this present opera was parsifal madame wagner does not permit its representation anywhere but in bayreuth the first act of the three occupied two hours and i enjoyed that in spite of the singing i trust that i know as well as anybody that singing is one of the most entrancing and bewitching and moving and eloquent of all the vehicles invented by man for the conveying of feeling but it seems to me that the chief virtue in song is melody air tune rhythm or what you please to call it and that when this feature is absent what remains is a picture with the color left out i was not able to detect in the vocal parts of parsifal anything that might with confidence be called rhythm or tune or melody one person performed at a time and a long time too often in a noble and always in a high-toned voice but he only pulled out long notes then some short ones then another long one then a sharp quick peremptory bark or two and so on and so on and when he was done you saw that the information which he had conveyed had not compensated for the disturbance not always but pretty often if two of them would but put in a duet occasionally and blend the voices but no they don't do that the great master who knew so well how to make a hundred instruments rejoice in unison and pour out their souls in mingled and melodious tides of delicious sound deals only in barren solos when he puts in the vocal parts it may be that he was deep and only added the singing to his operas for the sake of the contrast it would make with the music singing it does seem the wrong name to apply to it strictly described it is a practicing of difficult and unpleasant intervals mainly an ignorant person gets tired of listening to gymnastic intervals in the long run no matter how pleasant they may be in Parsifal there is a hermit named Gurnemans who stands on the stage in one spot and practices by the hour, while first one and then another character of the cast endures what he can of it, and then retires to die. During the evening there was an intermission of three-quarters of an hour after the first act, and one an hour long after the second. In both instances the theatre was totally emptied. People who had previously engaged tables in the one sold eating-house were able to put in their time very satisfactorily the other thousand went hungry the opera was concluded at ten in the evening or a little later when we reached home we had been gone more than seven hours seven hours at five dollars a ticket is almost too much for the money while browsing about the front yard among the crowd between the acts i encountered twelve or fifteen friends from different parts of america and those of them who were most familiar with Wagner said that Parsifal seldom pleased at first, but that after one had heard it several times it was almost sure to become a favorite. It seemed impossible, but it was true, for
for the statement came from people whose word was not to be doubted. And I gathered some further information. On the ground I found part of a German musical magazine, and in it a letter written by Ulick, thirty-three years ago, in which he defends the scorned and abused Wagner against people like me, who found fault with the comprehensive absence of what our kind regards as singing. Ulick says Wagner despised jene plapperud music, and therefore runs, trills, and schnorkel are discarded by him. I don't know what a schnorkel is, but now that I know it has been left out of these operas I never have missed so much in my life. And Ulick further says that Wagner's song is true, that it is simply emphasized in toned speech. That certainly describes it, in Parsifal and some of the other operas. And if I understand Ulick's elaborate German, he apologizes for the beautiful airs in Tannhauser. Very well. Now that Wagner and I understand each other, perhaps we shall get along better. And I shall stop calling Wagner on the American plan, and thereafter call him Wagner, as per German custom, for I feel entirely friendly now. The minute we get reconciled to a person, how willing we are to throw aside little needless punctilios and pronounce his name right. Of course, I came home wondering why people should come from all corners of America to hear these operas, when we have lately had a season or two of them in New York with these same singers in the several parts, and possibly the same orchestra. I resolved to think that out at all hazards. Tuesday. Yesterday they played the only operatic favorite I have ever had, an opera which has always driven me mad with ignorant delight whenever I have heard it. Tannhauser. I heard it first when I was a youth. I heard it last in the last German season in New York. I was busy yesterday, and I did not intend to go, knowing I should have another Tannhauser opportunity in a few days. But after five o'clock I found myself free, and walked out to the opera house, and arrived about the beginning of the second act. My opera ticket admitted me to the grounds in front, past the policeman and the chain, and I thought I would take a rest on a bench for an hour or two, and wait for the third act. In a moment or so the first bugles blew, and the multitude began to crumble apart and melt into the theatre. I will explain that this bugle-call is one of the pretty features here. You see, the theatre is empty, and hundreds of the audience are a good way off in the feeding-house. The first bugle-call is blown about a quarter of an hour before time for the curtain to rise. This company of buglers, in uniform, march out with military step, and send out over the landscape a few bars of the theme of the approaching act, piercing the distances with the gracious notes. Then they march to the other entrance and repeat. Presently they do this over again. Yesterday only about two hundred people were still left in front of the house when the second call was blown. In another half-minute they would have been in the house, but then a thing happened which delayed them. The one solitary thing in this world which could be relied on with certainty to accomplish it, I suppose, an imperial princess appeared in the balcony above them. They stopped dead in their tracks, and began to gaze in a stupor of gratitude and satisfaction. The lady presently saw that she must disappear, or the doors would be closed upon these worshippers, so she returned to her box. This daughter-in-law of an emperor was pretty. She had a kind face. She was without airs. She is known to be full of common human sympathies. There are many kinds of princesses, but this kind is the most harmful of all, 
for wherever they go they reconcile people to monarchy and set back the clock of progress the valuable princes the desirable princes are the czars and their sort by their mere dumb presence in the world they cover with derision every argument that can be invented in favor of royalty by the most ingenious casuist in his time the husband of this princess was valuable he led a degraded life he ended it with his own hand in circumstances and surroundings of a hideous sort and was buried like a god in the opera house there is a long loft back of the audience a kind of open gallery in which princes are displayed it is sacred to them it is the holy of holies as soon as the filling of the house is about complete the standing multitude turn and fix their eyes upon the princely layout and gaze mutely and longingly and adoringly and regretfully like sinners looking into heaven they become rapt unconscious steeped in worship there is no spectacle anywhere that is more pathetic than this it is worth crossing many oceans to see it is somehow not the same gaze that people rivet upon a victor hugo or niagara or the bones of the mastodon or the guillotine of the revolution or the great pyramid or distant vesuvius smoking in the sky or any man long celebrated to you by his genius and achievements or thing long celebrated to you by the praises of books and pictures no that gaze is only the gaze of intense curiosity interest wonder engaged in drinking delicious deep draughts that taste good all the way down and appease and satisfy the thirst of a lifetime satisfy it that is the word hugo and the mastodon will still have a degree of intense interest thereafter when encountered but never anything approaching the ecstasy of that first view the interest of a prince is different it may be envy it may be worship doubtless it is a mixture of both and it does not satisfy its thirst with one view or even noticeably diminish it perhaps the essence of the thing is the value which men attach to a valuable something which has come by luck and not been earned a dollar picked up in the road is more satisfaction to you than the ninety and nine which you had to work for and money won at faro or in stocks snuggles into your heart in the same way a prince picks up grandeur power and a permanent holiday and gratis support by a pure accident the accident of birth and he stands always before the grieved eye of poverty and obscurity a monumental representative of luck and then supremest value of all his is the only high fortune on the earth which is secure the commercial millionaire may become a beggar the illustrious statesman can make a vital mistake and be dropped and forgotten the illustrious general can lose a decisive battle and with it the consideration of men but once a prince always a prince that is to say an imitation god and neither hard fortune nor an infamous character nor an addled brain nor the speech of an ass can undeify him by common consent of all the nations and all the ages the most valuable thing in this world is the homage of men whether deserved or undeserved it follows without doubt or question then that the most desirable position possible is that of a prince and i think it also follows that the so-called usurpations with which history is littered are the most excusable misdemeanors which men have committed to usurp a usurpation that is all it amounts to isn't it 
a prince is not to us what he is to a european of course we have not been taught to regard him as a god and so one good look at him is likely to so nearly appease our curiosity as to make him an object of no greater interest the next time we want a fresh one but it is not so with the european i am quite sure of it the same old one will answer he never stales eighteen years ago i was in london and i called at an englishman's house on a bleak and foggy and dismal december afternoon to visit his wife and married daughter by appointment i waited half an hour and then they arrived frozen they explained that they had been delayed by an unlooked-for circumstance while passing in the neighborhood of marlborough house they saw a crowd gathering and were told that the prince of wales was about to drive out so they stopped to get a sight of him they had waited half an hour on the sidewalk freezing with the crowd but were disappointed at last the prince had changed his mind i said with a good deal of surprise is it possible that you two have lived in london all your lives and have never seen the prince of wales apparently it was their turn to be surprised for they exclaimed what an idea why we have seen him hundreds of times they had seen him hundreds of times yet they had waited half an hour in the gloom and the bitter cold in the midst of a jam of patience from the same asylum on the chance of seeing him again it was a stupefying statement but one is obliged to believe the english even when they say a thing like that i fumbled around for a remark and got out this one i can't understand it at all if i had never seen general grant i doubt if i would do that even to get a sight of him with a slight emphasis on the last word their blank faces showed that they wondered where the parallel came in then they said blankly of course not he is only a president it is doubtless a fact that a prince is a permanent interest an interest not subject to deterioration the general who was never defeated the general who never held a council of war the only general who ever commanded a connected battle-front twelve hundred miles long the smith who welded together the broken parts of a great republic and re-established it where it is quite likely to outlast all the monarchies present and to come was really a person of no serious consequence to these people to them with their training my general was only a man after all while their prince was clearly much more than that a being of a wholly unsimilar construction and constitution and being of no more blood and kinship with men than are the serene eternal lights of the firmament with the poor dull tallow candles of commerce that sputter and die and leave nothing behind but a pinch of ashes and a stink i saw the last act of tannhauser i sat in the gloom and the deep stillness waiting one minute two minutes i do not know exactly how long then the soft music of the hidden orchestra began to breathe its rich long sighs out from under the distant stage and by and by the drop curtain parted in the middle and was drawn softly aside disclosing the twilighted wood and a wayside shrine with a white-robed girl praying and a man standing near presently that noble chorus of men's voices was heard approaching and from that moment until the closing of the curtain it was music just music music to make one drunk with pleasure music to make one take scrip and staff and beg his way round the globe to hear it 
to such as are intending to come here in the wagner season next year i wish to say bring your dinner-pail with you if you do you will never cease to be thankful if you do not you will find it a hard fight to save yourself from famishing in bayreuth bayreuth is merely a large village and has no very large hotels or eating-houses the principal inns are the golden anchor and the sun at either of these places you can get an excellent meal no i mean you can go there and see other people get it there is no charge for this the town is littered with restaurants but they are small and bad and they are overdriven with custom you must secure a table hours beforehand and often when you arrive you will find somebody occupying it we have had this experience we have had a daily scramble for life and when i say we i include shoals of people i have the impression that the only people who do not have to scramble are the veterans the disciples who have been here before and know the ropes i think they arrive about a week before the first opera and engage all the tables for the season my tribe had tried all kinds of places some outside of the town a mile or two and have captured only nibblings and odds and ends never in any instance a complete and satisfying meal digestible <laughs> no the reverse these odds and ends are going to serve as souvenirs of bayreuth and in that regard their value is not to be overestimated photographs fade bric-a-brac gets lost busts of wagner get broken but once you absorbed a bayreuth restaurant meal it is your possession and your property until the time comes to embalm the rest of you some of these pilgrims here become in effect cabinets cabinets of souvenirs of bayreuth it is believed among scientists that you could examine the crop of a dead bayreuth pilgrim anywhere in the earth and tell where he came from but i like this ballast i think a hermitage scrap up at eight in the evening when all the famine breeders have been there and laid in their mementos and gone is the quietest thing you can lay on your keelston except gravel thursday they keep two teams of singers in stock for the chief roles and one of these is composed of the most renowned artists in the world with materna and alvary in the lead i suppose a double team is necessary doubtless a single team would die of exhaustion in a week for all the plays last from four in the morning till ten at night nearly all the labor falls upon the half-dozen head singers and apparently they are required to furnish all the noise they can for the money if they feel a soft whispery mysterious feeling they are required to open out and let the public know it operas are given only on sundays mondays wednesdays and thursdays with three days of ostensible rest per week and two teams to do the four operas but the ostensible rest is devoted largely to rehearsing it is said that the off days are devoted to rehearsing from some time in the morning till ten at night are there two orchestras also it is quite likely since there are one hundred and ten names in the orchestra list yesterday the opera was tristan and isolde i have seen all sorts of audiences at theatres operas concerts lectures sermons funerals but none which was twin to the wagner audience of bayreuth for fixed and reverential attention absolute attention and petrified retention to the end of an act of the attitude assumed at the beginning of it you detect no movement in the solid mass of heads and shoulders 
you seem to sit with the dead in the gloom of a tomb you know that they are being stirred to their profoundest depths that there are times when they want to rise and wave handkerchiefs and shout their approbation and times when tears are running down their faces and it would be a relief to free their pent emotions in sobs or screams yet you hear not one utterance till the curtain swings together and the closing strains have slowly faded out and died then the dead rise with one impulse and shake the building with their applause every seat is full in the first act there is not a vacant one in the last if a man would be conspicuous let him come here and retire from the house in the midst of an act it would make him celebrated this audience reminds me of nothing i have ever seen and of nothing i have read about except the city in the arabian tale where all the inhabitants have been turned to brass and the traveller finds them after centuries mute motionless and still retaining the attitudes which they last knew in life here the wagner audience dress as they please and sit in the dark and worship in silence at the metropolitan in new york they sit in a glare and wear their showiest harness they hum airs they squeak fans they titter and they gabble all the time in some of the boxes the conversation and laughter are so loud as to divide the attention of the house with the stage in large measure the metropolitan is a showcase for rich fashionables who are not trained in wagnerian music and have no reverence for it but who like to promote art and show their clothes can that be an agreeable atmosphere to persons in whom this music produces a sort of divine ecstasy and to whom its creator is a very deity his stage a temple the works of his brain and hands consecrated things and the partaking of them with eye and ear a sacred solemnity manifestly no then perhaps the temporary expatriation the tedious traversing of seas and continents the pilgrimage to bayreuth stands explained these devotees would worship in an atmosphere of devotion it is only here that they can find it without fleck or blemish or any worldly pollution in this remote village there are no sights to see there is no newspaper to intrude the worries of the distant world there is nothing going on it is always sunday the pilgrim wends to his temple out of town sits out his moving service returns to his bed with his heart and soul and his body exhausted by long hours of tremendous emotion and he is in no fit condition to do anything but to lie torpid and slowly gather back life and strength for the next service this opera of tristan and isolde last night broke the hearts of all witnesses who were of the faith and i know of some who have heard of many who could not sleep after it but cried the night away i feel strongly out of place here sometimes i feel like the sane person in a community of the mad sometimes i feel like the one blind man where all others see the one groping savage in the college of the learned and always during service i feel like a heretic in heaven but by no means do i ever overlook or minify the fact that this is one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life i have never seen anything like this before i have never seen anything so great and fine and real as this devotion friday yesterday's opera was parsifal again 
the others went and they show marked advance in appreciation but i went hunting for relics and reminders of the margravine wilhelmina she of the imperishable memoirs i am properly grateful to her for her unconscious satire upon monarchy and nobility and therefore nothing which her hand touched or her eye looked upon is indifferent to me i am her pilgrim the rest of this multitude here are wagner's tuesday i have seen my last two operas my season is ended and we cross over into bohemia this afternoon i was supposing that my musical regeneration was accomplished and perfected because i enjoyed both of these operas singing and all and moreover one of them was parsifal but the experts have disenchanted me they say singing that wasn't singing that was the wailing screeching of third-rate obscurities palmed off on us in the interest of economy well i ought to have recognized the sign the old sure sign that has never failed me in matters of art whenever i enjoy anything in art it means that it is mighty poor the private knowledge of this fact has saved me from going to pieces with enthusiasm in front of many and many a chromo however my base instinct does bring me profit sometimes i was the only man out of thirty-two hundred who got his money back on those two operas end of section fourteen at the shrine of saint wagner